Lisa and to all of you for coming along this afternoon. In the 1539 preface to his German works, Martin Luther describes theology as being shaped by three practices, oratio, meditatio, tentatio, prayer, meditation, and affliction. The first of these, you'll notice, is prayer. My paper today will seek to trace what this claim about the priority of prayer in theological method means to Luther in the context of his wider thought in order to illuminate what, to my mind, remains one of the most creative and lastingly relevant dimensions of his theology uh, 500 years later, namely, his account of the deep and irreducible connection between experience and the practice of theological reasoning. In order to understand what Luther means in placing prayer at this crucial gosh, sorry about that, uh, place in theological method, it's necessary first to have a sense of Luther's understanding of what theology is and what it's for. And what follows, I'm building particularly on Oswald Bayer's penetrating analysis of this topic, as well as some of my own recent work on the specific ways that Luther appeals formally to experience in developing his views on salvation and the Christian life. Now, it's not particularly controversial, I think, to observe that Martin Luther, more than any other major theologian associated from, with the Protestant confessional traditions, associated the practice of theology with the life of the theologian. Although many later Protestants acknowledged the great importance of prayer, as well as the dangers involved when theology does not take practical and pastoral realities seriously, part of what made Luther so original was the way that he made the life and experience of the theologian, in an important sense, constitutive of her theology. For Luther, the raw material of theology is one of the main raw materials <coughs> of theology, is our own experience in the world and with God. Where this raw material is not fundamental to our theolo theologizing, then in Luther's view, we are not in fact doing theology. We're engaging in what he calls speculation, or mere reasoning we are very likely, specifically, to be deceived and mistaken in our reasonings and in our exegesis. There's much that could be said here about where Luther got this idea. In part, it's a legacy of the Augustinian spirituality mediated to him during his many years as an Augustinian friar, and especially through his superior in the order, Johannes Staupitz. Partly, too, Luther was influenced here by a certain tradition of mystical theology, especially in Germany and partly he felt that this was the practice of scripture itself. But in any case, Luther famously summarized this view of the importance of experience with the dictum sola experientia facet theologum. Experience alone makes the theologian. So what exactly did he mean by this? Luther believed that the main task of the theologian is to interpret the Bible. His dictum thus means that our own experience must inform our interpretation of the Bible. For Luther, study of scripture is only properly interpretation when it is not abstract, i.e., when the object of study is the Bible as it is encountered by the individual or community, as it is a word of God to them. This is how he understood one of the core methodological differences between himself and late medieval scholastic theologies. On crucial questions about human nature, sin, and concupiscence, he states that, quote, he has tested these spiritual matters in experience, whereas Thomas and all those who write and speak similarly have neglected this, 
Now, regardless of whether that's true, that's what Luther thought. Luther did believe that it was possible and indeed necessary for the theologian to make abstract claims about God and to make general assertions about the contents of scripture and so on. But for Luther, all of these tasks are primarily significant as they come to have a bearing on the practical life of the Christian, as they help to enable and sustain a real encounter between the individual and God. So given all of this, one of the great creative tensions running through Luther's theology is the relationship between this very high valuation of experience over and against theological speculation on the one hand, and his highly pessimistic anthropology on the other. Luther, of course, had a very robust, indeed quite radical, view of <coughs> sin. As he puts it in his Romans lectures, quote, Scripture describes the human person as curved in on himself, incroatus in se, so that he uses not only physical but even spiritual goods only for his own purposes and looks out for himself in all things. What Luther meant by this claim that human beings are curved in on ourselves is that whatever input the individual or community receives, she immediately and inevitably bends to her own sinful devices and desires. So for example, when we hear some important news, some big event, whether happy or sad, often our first thought is not for those actually involved or for others, but rather for how it affects ourselves. This kind of instinctive orientation to the self rather than to others is, I think, much of what Luther meant when he said that people are curved in on themselves. So in Luther's view of human nature, human beings are profoundly prone to turning even the greatest of God's gifts and the most divine of truths into instruments for securing control over God, even as baptized Christians. In relation to theology, this means that without a particular kind of intervention of the Holy Spirit, Theology is similar to what Ludwig Feuerbach would later think that it was, namely, an idolatrous projection of our own thoughts, needs, and desires onto God, such that, as he said of the enthusiasts, quote, all idle dreams become nothing but God's word. So in the face of it, these two broad features of Luther's thought that I've just outlined appear to be incompatible. To say that experience makes the theologian appears to be a fundamental affirmation of the value of the experiences of the human subject for learning about God. But to say that human beings are incoatus in se would seem to imply that our own experiences are actually quite useless for learning about God. We'll only learn about ourselves, <coughs> projected into the sky, not about the living God of Scripture. The answer to this apparent problem is that Luther in fact understood experience in a particular sort of way. Luther talks about the kinds of experience that makes the theologian, when he elsewhere clarifies that what he means are the sorts of experiences that pierce the veil of human egoism, and that teach us the very things we don't want to know about ourselves. As Luther puts it in his second lecture series on the Psalms, quote, he becomes a theologian in that he lives, yes, even more so, in that he dies and delivers himself to hell, not in that he knows, reads, or speculates. Luther explains the point at more length in the table talk. Quote, we ought not to criticize, explain, or judge the scriptures by our mere reason, but diligently, with prayer, meditate thereon and seek their meaning. The devil and afflictions also afford us occasion to learn and understand the scriptures by experience 
and practice. Without these, we should never understand them, however diligently we read and listen to them. The Holy Ghost must here be our only master and tutor. So what this means is that the kinds of experience that make the theologian are first and foremost experiences of suffering, affliction, and need. Experiences which, as Oswald Bayer puts it, quote, we do not design but suffer. It is these cruciform experiences which come to us from without and which we would much prefer to avoid. They are the instruments the Holy Spirit appropriates to teach us the truth about our own sin and need and about God's response to it. This is part of the meaning of Luther's theology of the cross, and in particular his claim in the proofs of the Heidelberg Disputation that God can be found only in suffering and the cross. The model of God's communication to us, then, in Luther's theology is not that of a teacher to a student, but of a doctor to a patient. Because human beings are curved in on themselves, they're very good at deflecting and avoiding uncomfortable truths, the best tools in the doctor's toolkit are thus the ones that we would never seek out of our own devices. For Luther, this pattern is both the pattern for all Christians as they learn about God, and it's the pattern of the formal theologian as he or she goes about his work. Through such experiences, the Holy Spirit, as it were, crafts the theologian into someone who has eyes to read the Bible as Luther, anyway, believed it should be read as a word of compassion to those troubled by sin and anxiety, and as a balm for the weary. This is a position that Luther held to throughout his career. As early as the first Psalms lectures in 15, 13, 14, 26 years before the preface to his German writings, he's already able to articulate this connection between experience of affliction and exegesis. Quote, in tribulation, the exegete learns many things which he did not know before. Likewise, many things he already knew in theory, he grasps more firmly through experience. And this is precisely what Luther himself actually did in his exegesis at many points. To give just one example, in 1515-16, in a crucial step towards the development of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, Luther determined, with the help of Augustine, that St. Paul's laments in the seventh chapter of Romans about inability to do what he knows is right, describe Christian rather than pre-Christian experience. In other words, as Luther puts it, well, the divided eye in Romans 7 refers to the spiritual rather than the carnal man. In Luther's comments on the passage, in three separate cases where Paul describes what he knows and finds about sin in his life, Luther glosses the text as referring to what Paul knows through the experience of contending against sin. He always glosses it as experience. So here, then, we see a good example of how Luther's own experiences seem to have played a key role in his exegesis of a difficult or contested passage. Before returning at last to how prayer relates to all of this, there are two final sort of short observations that I'd like to make about Luther's understanding of theology. The first is to underline that part of what all this means is that Luther's understanding of theology is highly dynamic. Because human beings never fully escape sin, because true theology can only come out of actual experiences of life over time, theology is always in a process of engagement between our actual current experiences and afflictions, which are constantly changing, and the text of scripture, which never changes. 
This means that the theologian, as it were, can never go on autopilot, unless we're constantly having our experience transmuted by the Holy Spirit into the raw material for theology in the laboratory of Scripture, our theology will tend to fall back in on itself and become an exposition, once again, of the reasonings of the theologian rather than actual insight into Scripture and the work of God. Oswald Bayer characterizes both the beauty and the challenge of this way of thinking about theology when he notes that for Luther, quote, the subject of theology is a living, dramatic event that is as difficult to depict as a bird in flight. This is why Luther repeatedly calls theology a sapientia experimentalis, an experiential wisdom, and why he claimed that theology is an unending wisdom that can never be learned completely. The second observation to add to the dynamic I've been describing means that for Luther, theology is always fundamentally founded upon and ordered to soteriology. And this is probably one of the more um, controversial parts of Luther. He's so endlessly focused on soteriology. In any case, for him, all other theological topics fan out from this center and must be made sense of in light of it. As Luther famously defined it, the subject of theology, quote, is the sinning human being and the justifying God. That's the whole subject of theology. But this position follows from Luther's view of human nature. Because of the gravitational pull of sin and the self-incubation of the soul, uh, which can never be said to have lastingly diminished in this life, at least never for sure, theology, as it were, never graduates from the task of learning and relearning about sin and need in order to understand Christ and his coming and to cling to God's grace expressed in this word. In light of all of this, why did Luther say that theology begins with prayer? Here we can now see that Luther seems to have had a particular kind of prayer in mind. Namely, it's a relatively narrow sense of prayer, but anyway, petitionary prayer that arises from affliction. Here's what Luther says about prayer in his large catechism. This is a long quote. <clears throat> Thus, prayer is also prescribed so that we may see and reflect on those troubles that ought to press and force us to pray without ceasing. Whoever wants to plead must present a petition, make a request, and name something that is desired. Otherwise, it cannot be called a prayer. If such prayer is to be a prayer, it has to be done with earnestness so that one feels one's need, and such a need that it squeeze us, squeezes us and drives us out to call out and scream to God. Consequently, the prayer should also serve to remind us of our many needs so that we consider them and take them to heart. We all have a sufficient amount of need, Luther continues, but it's our failure that we do not feel and see it. God wants you to bring your, to voice your needs and desires, not because God does not know them, but so that your heart, uh, so that you set your heart on fire to long all the more and more strenuously and to spread your arms to receive much. So this sort of prayer, petitionary prayer that arises naturally out of the intense and concrete needs of individuals and communities, brings together the threads in Luther's thinking that I've been describing. It arises out of affliction and need, and thus bears within it the truth of the difficulties of the human situation, at least as Luther saw it. It furthermore incorporates the Christian's real personal experience into her relationship with God, and so keeps her speculations and reasonings grounded in reality. And finally, it creates humility. There's no such thing in Luther's view as a purely intellectual 
humility, a kind of propositional assent to the assertion of human sin is not the same as humility. True humility arrives over time through the ongoing life and practice of the theologian in her engagement with God and the concrete realities of her life. The central part of such practice, of such engagement between the theologian and God, is prayer. So petitionary prayer is thus both the performance and the actualization of Christian humility. And for Luther, it is precisely as this that prayer is the starting point for theology. So to return to where we started, to Luther's preface to his German writings in 1539, here's how Luther describes it. Quote, I want to point out to you a correct way of studying theology, for I have had practice in that. In the first place, you should know that the Holy Scripture is a book of such a type that it makes the wisdom of all other books into foolishness, since no book teaches about eternal life except this book alone. For this reason, you should immediately despair of using your own mind and reason. For with such tools, you will not succeed. But with such presumptuousness, you yourself and others with you will plunge from heaven into the abyss and hell. Instead, kneel down in your little chamber and pray with proper humility and earnestness to God that he would desire to give you his Holy Spirit through his beloved Son, who will enlighten you, lead you, and give you understanding. So what can we now conclude from all of this with a view, perhaps, to theology today? I'm a systematic theologian. I want to make it useful for theology today. Well, first, it seems to me that Luther provides a compelling set of arguments built around his theology of sin for the idea that good theology very often, if not always, comes out of our own particular contexts and positionality and experience with God and in the world. The theologian's experience, transmuted in a certain kind of way, is a gift that informs our theology, not, as some theologians, especially Protestant theologians, think, a problematic subjectivity to be avoided or excised in our theologizing. But, and here is Luther's unusual, quite striking angle on the issue, this affirmation of the subjectivity of the theologian derives from the robustness of his understanding of sin rather than out of an uncritical optimism about human nature or being naive about self-deception. He has such a low view of human nature that actually he, he thinks you, you need your experience um, rather than what many Protestants have said. So in this I'd argue that Luther can and should be an important, oh wait, sorry, second and finally, it's clear that for Luther, prayer and especially prayer that expresses a need for God, is a key place where this transmuting of experience into theology occurs. The spiritual practice of prayer is one of the most important sites where our own experiences and insights and sufferings begin to be purified and transformed into something that, in the spirit, can be of use both to the church and to the world. In this, I'd argue that Luther can and should be an important conversation partner in the larger impulse in contemporary Christian theology to recover a robust sense that spirituality is of fundamental, as it were, dogmatic, rather than peripheral significance in the practice of theology, an impulse visible in different ways in the work of Sarah Coakley, Mark McIntosh, Mita Volpe, Graham Ward, Lewis Ayers, among others. I've long been struck in particular by Lewis Ayres' suggestion that, quote, good interpretation of patristic formulae and principles 
is likely to involve us in being able to perform spiritual practices that are in a high degree of continuity with those that sustained their original expression. What Ayer seems to mean here is that we won't really come to a deeper understanding of the early creeds or patristic theology unless we are ourselves engaged in the sorts of spiritual practices and prayer and ways of reading the Bible that the fathers themselves were engaged in. Martin Luther's theology would seem to authorize a similar position, albeit in a more Protestant key. To understand God's word in scripture, we must enter into our interpretation in and through our experience of sin and of the word of salvation to sinners. Unless the theologian brings his own experience of prayer-inducing affliction to bear in his theology, he risks engaging in mere speculation about God, understanding neither salvation nor scripture, or else getting stuck in the dead letter of some old formulation when the Spirit of God has moved on. Thank you.